Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following is an iHeartRadio podcast. The Soundtrack Show will begin in 5, 4, 3... Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and this is a musical movie commentary for Casablanca, a film from Warner Brothers from 1942, starring Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman, directed by Michael Curtiz, produced by Hal B. Wallace, with a film score by the great Max Steiner. I haven't done one of these commentaries in a while, and I think Casablanca is just filled with fascinating facts. Uh, It's a wonderful movie, and of course, if you don't have the movie, it doesn't matter. This is really just a conversation for us to have about our love of movies and film scores, to talk about Max Steiner, and maybe share some things that I wasn't able to get to in my last episode. But before we get started, so that we can have an uninterrupted experience, I'm going to take a short break. Be right back. And now for a brief intermission. We return now to the soundtrack show. Casablanca begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Here we have that Warner Brothers shield, Jack L. Warner, executive producer, more on him later, with that great fanfare by Max Steiner, which he wrote and was used in hundreds of Warner Brothers films, and he certainly used them in his fair share. And then we immediately transition into this music that sets us in North Africa, which uh, Max Steiner borrowed from a a movie that he had written a few years previous, as I had mentioned. But it's really effective in setting this kind of exotic uh, flavor for this movie and immediately placing us somewhere that is beyond the familiar, uh, sort of the suburban familiar. So it gets the job done. You know, these these scores were written very, very quickly. Casablanca was no exception. And uh, it's you can't argue with the result. And a lot of classic Hollywood films, a lot of films in general, just kind of used opening music to set the tone, to let us know what we were in for, and of course, to establish themes. Speaking of themes, here comes our first appearance of La Marseillaise. Dun, 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 dun. Of course, the French national anthem appearing over Max Steiner's name as a, I don't know, a wink to himself, ending with a deceptive cadence starting this uh, sort of this immigration trail from Paris to, uh, to Casablanca here. Many eyes in imprisoned Europe turned hopefully... La Marseillaise, of course, the French national anthem. The first time I ever heard it, and my generation heard it, was at the top of All You Need Is Love by the Beatles. But of course, it is the French national anthem, and uh, it is a huge, huge part of this movie, this film score, the plot. It's used as a storytelling device 
And of course, here we have the map sequence, which uh, Spielberg made liberal use of in Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, as kind of a tribute to Casablanca. The straight line, the dotted line over the ocean. I mean, this is really just... It's so obvious when you watch Casablanca how much uh, it affected Spielberg and therefore affected a lot of movies of of my childhood and uh, of later films. And so these ideas have still kind of stuck around. And of course, Steiner's score continuing to tell the story over this classic narration that's telling the story of Casablanca as we wait and wait. Here we have a shot uh, panning down to a uh, back lot scene at the Warner Brothers lot in Burbank. Of course, this uh, street scene was reused later as, as Paris. But of course, at this point, it's dressed as Casablanca. There we have the first few chords of the German national anthem. Two German couriers carrying important official documents murdered on train from Oran. Murderer and possible accomplices headed for As uh, we see this Vichy police officer doing an APB on a murderer, we find out immediately that there have been two two German couriers that were murdered outside of Casablanca. So now the police are rounding up all of the usual suspects. <laughs> Guilty until proven innocent. Uh, rounding everybody up, checking paperwork, chaos. We're immediately kind of told here that um, Casablanca is a chaotic place and uh, there's not a lot of justice. Uh, man starts running, but they're all captured. Max Steiner's hitting all of this. The whole opening of this movie really is uh, a big piece for him. And in fact, we're going to have a lot of music here at the top and then it's just going to disappear. In that case, we'd have to ask you to come along. Wait, it's possible that, yes. As uh, film critic Pauline Kael pointed out, this man here giving the paperwork, that is a real accent. Most of the, uh, of the cast of this film came from Europe. They were immigrants. And of course, here he gets shot in front of the poster of Marshal Patan here, who was the head of the Vichy government. Anyway, most of the cast members were immigrants and they had very real accents that you couldn't get out of central casting. This was a movie filled with people that could really identify with the plot of this film. And it's one of the things that lends a certain air of authenticity to it. Of course, there's the uh, Palace of Justice and we hear a minor key version of La Marseillaise to uh, give us sort of an intellectual political commentary on what we just saw. So Max Steiner has done a ton of work and we're not even five minutes into the movie. He's done a ton of work to kind of musically set up what we're in for. The the tough uh, trail all the way to Casablanca, the, um, the injustices of the Vichy police in Casablanca. Unfortunately, along with these unhappy refugees, the scum of Europe has gravitated to Casablanca. Some of them have been waiting. Now we have a nice humorous moment here with a pickpocket. Watch yourself. Be on guard. But you know, just to kind of set it up, and this is something that I, I studied when I really got into Casablanca, was kind of the politics of the whole situation. So um, Casablanca was in the reach of a French government at the time, and when the Nazis invaded Paris in 1940, France got split up into two sides. There was occupied France, which was occupied by the Nazis, and then there was unoccupied territories, which were controlled by the Vichy government, which was a government run out of the city of Vichy. And But it was, as uh, Rudy Belmer, the late Rudy Belmer, pointed out, he's a film historian, you know, that was uh, a government that was never recognized by the Allies because it was under, it was under the thumb of, uh, of the Nazis. It was really under Nazi control. It was kind of a wink. Yeah, I know, you're not occupied, but they really were. Or at least they were very cooperative with the Nazis. That is my understanding of the whole setup of Casablanca. 
And of course, there is the actor Conrad Veidt making his appearance as Major Strasser. Conrad Veidt is actually another great example of an actor who left Europe because of the Nazis. He was uh, a star in Germany. His big, big role, breakout role, very influential, came from a silent film called uh, The Cabin of Dr. Caligari, where he played a, a young uh, <laughs> sleepwalking murderer um, under the control of the Sonambulist. But it's a very influential German expressionist movie that he was the star of, a young star. And, you know, a lot of people came to America, a lot of actors came to America leaving Europe because of the Nazis, and they were stars in Europe, but they ended up playing supporting roles or bit parts. Conrad Veidt, however, um, was very, very famous and very well recognized and was apparently the highest paid actor in this entire movie. And now we have Rick's Cafe American and we enter a long period of just diegetic or source music that uh, comes from the bar here. I've wandered around and finally found somebody who could make me be true, could make me be and we hear It Had to Be You being sung by actor Dooley Wilson uh, as we enter this cafe, this really hot nightclub. Of course, there's the actors pretending to play the drums. And the interesting thing about Dooley Wilson here is that Dooley Wilson was a drummer. He was not a piano player at all. And if you look at his fingers, at his hands, you can really see very clearly in this shot that he's just kind of like... I don't know what he's doing there. If he's just kind of, you know, giving uh, <laughs> giving the prop a little tap, but keeping time. But uh, he's certainly not playing piano. But he had a, had a great voice and uh, was really, really great in the part. Of course, at some point, the producer, Halby Wallace, wanted the character of Sam to be female. And interestingly enough, if you're a fan of jazz, Ella Fitzgerald was considered, Lena Horne was considered, but eventually the character went back to being male. A lot of decisions that uh, were made in the production of Casablanca, and this is one of the really interesting things that I want to talk about, a lot of the decisions that were made were made because of the Hollywood production code, the Hayes Code, which was a self-policing code of, of morality, of conduct, that says there are certain things you can and can't put in a, in a movie. You know, this was a way of, of Hollywood regulating itself to avoid federal regulation, you know, and um, they had to dance around a lot of very adult and very serious issues in this movie. Sleeping with a married woman, for example, that was a huge thing that was flagged in this script. Um, you, couldn't, you couldn't talk about certain things. But then there were other really unfortunate signs at the time. Um, it turns out that the reason why they didn't have... The thing that and, and eventually made Sam a male character instead of a female character or female talent in the middle of the club is simply because Sam and Rick, Humphrey Bogart's character, are friends and they travel to Paris together. Well, the Hayes Code was like, well, that's a non-starter. You can't have an African-American woman and a Caucasian man traveling together because of its implications. And <laughs> it's just totally silly by our standards, but... But they were like, well, yeah, I guess it has to be, man. We know we got to sidestep that. So they decided not to do that. They decided to keep uh, Sam a male character, which it's hard to imagine Casablanca in any other way than it turned out. But there are a lot of examples of the Hayes Code really policing this movie and a lot of the decisions that it made. There's a wonderful uh, intro of Bogart there playing chess and saying, no, 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 the German baker can't come in. 
Uh, the actor on the left was one of the very few American actors that uh, appeared in this movie, of course, with Humphrey Bogart as well, uh, being an American. We hear a lot of music playing in the background throughout this movie. I'm just wild about Harry or, or uh, Avalon or Love for Sale. There's a lot of what is now part of the classic American songbook of standards, jazz standards that appear in this movie. And here we have actor Peter Lorre, amazing actor. One of the interesting things about Casablanca is you listen to Peter Lorre's voice and he has a really interesting music to his delivery. This is a very sort of, this thing that he does, you know, he's, I believe, Hungarian? One of the nice things about doing commentaries, by the way, is that they're obviously totally unscripted. So sometimes I say things that I think are right, but I'm just talking sort of stream of consciousness off the top of my head. But Peter Lorre is an amazing character actor. He, um, he actually started and was very famous. Again, another example of someone very famous in Europe. He started in Fritz Lang's M, which was about a serial killer. He played the serial killer. And uh, eventually he had to leave Europe for, uh, for America. He ended up becoming kind of a fixture in film noir. And of course, Humphrey Bogart and Peter Lorre had appeared together in 1941's The Maltese Falcon, which I've briefly talked about before on this show. Ways of my own, I provide them with exit visas. For a price, Ugarty, for a price. <laughs> but Peter Lorre and Sidney Greenstreet, who is an English actor that was a comedian, they all appeared in movies a lot together. In fact, Peter Lorre and Sidney Greenstreet appeared in nine films together, I believe all for Warner Brothers. But um, this is just such a colorful uh, cast of characters and just represents, as again, uh, the historian Rudy Belmer points out, just kind of the best of the old Hollywood studio system. You have the greatest actors, but also the greatest supporting actors. Something that even you have never seen. Letters of Transit, signed by General Vigon, cannot be rescinded, not even questioned. One moment. Tonight I'll be selling those for more money than even I have ever dreamed of. And then, adio, Casablanca. You know, Rick, I have many a friend in Casablanca, but somehow, just because you despise me, you are the only one I trust. Will you keep these for me, please? So here we find out about the MacGuffin of Casablanca, which are these letters of transit that were signed by General de Gaulle, Charles de Gaulle, meaning that somehow they're magic, they're irrefutable, whoever has them can get out of Casablanca, no questions asked. And he's supposed to sell them that someone's going to, you know, to someone who's going to show up later that evening. But he's going to go off and gamble and, hey, Rick, can you hold these for me? I trust you because you don't like me. <laughs> uh, so he decides to hold them. And here uh, he tells Ugati, like, I heard that those German couriers uh, had letters of transit, you know, the two that were murdered. And here's where we kind of find out. And of course, Peter Lorre dodges the question or Ugati dodges the question. Rick, Bogart's character, knows that uh, Ugati killed those two couriers for those letters of transit. And now we have an original song that was commissioned for this movie called Knock on Wood. Let's take a listen. How much trouble? Too much trouble. Well, now, don't you bow. Just knuckle down and knock on wood. There's that great piano playing again. We're unhappy. Now, look at the lighting here. This is actually really interesting. On the top left, you actually see this, this uh, great silhouette of, of some of the screens that were in the set in Casablanca. And of course, you see a lot of depth with the, uh, the foreground is dark, the background is dark, and the midground is light while he's playing. You know, when I say that, uh, that Casablanca was made by 
level 90 movie making wizards and the legend Max Steiner was the composer, we have to mention another legend, which is Arthur Edison, the director of photography, the, the, uh, the DP on this or the cinematographer. His work on this is just incredible. Working with the uh, props department and art department to have so many things in Casablanca on the set that would just take light so well, like the little frills on those lamps and you know, and the lanterns above, and you will see shadow a lot in this movie. And most of the time, even that little light fixture up there in the top left that we just passed, puts off this kind of silhouette of a cage, a prison. I mean, it's one of the themes of this movie is the way that uh, shadow, you know, whether it's a lattice or or some kind of design, will will throw a shadow on on the wall or on the ceiling that really looks like like prison bars. There's a lot of silhouette, a lot of shadow in this movie. Uh, you see some back there. You see uh, Bogart later when he's in his office in shadow, going into his safe. Again, having just done the Raiders, Raiders series, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, you can see the influence of of this film on so many films that geek culture just reveres. Now here's a wonderful character, Yvonne, here on the left. Another actor that ca that uh, came from France. In real life, was actually married to another actor here that we'll show you here in a second. This actor on the right is named Leonid Kinski, and actually he was a drinking buddy of Bogart's. And the actor on the left, Madeleine Lebeau. She is Rick's girlfriend, and he is just paying her no no mind at all. It's actually a really sad scene. Uh, she drinks and drinks and drinks, and Rick throws her out. Um, but later, I want to come back to this character, Yvonne, because later... She's actually the, the, the reason why I watch this movie, because I saw a clip of her later in the film that I just thought was devastating in, in the most beautiful way when she shows up later in the film and you learn more about you know, her plight and her suffering, uh, along with a lot of the other immigrants in the bar in the famous La Marseillaise scene. She's seen just crying her eyes out and you suddenly are just filled with sympathy for this poor lost character who honestly, you know, Rick, who just threw her out of her bar, is, you know, just as lost as she is. Hello, Rick. It's just a miserable existence. How extravagant you are, throwing away women like that. Someday they may be scarce. And here's Cloud Rains, of course, one of my favorite actors. He's just really, really, really just wonderful in this role as uh, as the prefect Renault. This is a great scene between the two of them where we start to get a little uh, idea of some of the humor in here. And again, that background music just continues to play through this entire scene. Here we have a special effects shot of an airplane, probably rear projection. The plane to Lisbon. And he kind of betrays through that look that he does want to get out of Casablanca. And he gets grilled here. By I've often speculated on why you don't return to America. Did you abscond with the church funds? Love this dialogue. Did you run off with the senator's wife? I like to think that you killed a man. It's the romantic in me. Great line. It's a combination of all three. And what in heaven's name brought you to Casablanca? My health. I came to Casablanca for the waters. The waters? What waters? We're in the desert. I was misinformed. Classic Rick. This actor here is actually was another actor who was very famous in France. His name is Marcel Dalio and was actually married to uh, Madeleine Lebeau in real life for a while. But he was a very famous actor in France 
had to leave because of the Nazis, and he came to America and was reduced to playing bit parts like this one. In fact, he's not even credited. Rick, there's going to be some excitement here tonight. We're going to make an arrest in your cafe. Not again. Oh, this is no ordinary arrest. Here we find out about the arrest. Of course, they know it's Peter Lorre, Ugati, and uh, they're going to arrest him. Here's the scene that I talked about earlier, and uh, actually the late Roger Ebert points out here that this is an invisible wall right here. They just went into an office, and there's supposed to be a wall here, but there isn't. He's just moving the camera through uh, a wall that isn't there as if they're in a separate room. And then you see this wonderful silhouette of uh, Humphrey Bogart here. And there he is. And then we'll cut to a different shot here on the side. Well, you got something on your mind. Why don't you spill it? How observant you are. I want to take a moment to talk about the Warner Brothers. It's something that I talked about uh, a little bit in my previous episode, but I'm really taken by Warner Brothers as one of the greatest uh, still standing studios today. In Hollywood, it's just so rock and roll what they did, you know, by fighting the Nazis and really, really putting their beliefs before their finances because there were huge financial repercussions. And in fact, there were indeed death threats, not just from people around Hollywood that were angry when they put out confessions of a Nazi spy a couple of years before this and certainly before the United States entered the war. But, you know, from sort of the Bund rallies that were happening, um, you know, the pro-Nazis that were in the United States at the time you know, gave them death threats, and they released it anyway. You know, the brothers were very ingenious in uh, in their business dealings and forever changed motion pictures in a few ways. Is that a serious offer? I just paid out 20. I'd like to get it back. Make it 10. I'm only a poor, corrupt official. Okay, done. No matter how clever he is, he still needs an exit visa. Or I should say two. Why too? He's traveling with a lady. You know, the four the four Warner Brothers, Harry, Albert, Sam, and Jack, they did a couple of things. The first was, you know, they were the ones that brought talkies into films. And if you think about talkies, that was a huge, huge change. The thing about silent film was that it was it was a a, a major mega industry that was really developed in it on its own as an art form. By the time the jazz singer came out in 1927, starring Al Jolson, which was a Warner Brothers picture. And that disrupted and effectively shut down the entire silent film industry and everything moved over to sound. But that was a huge gamble. And Sam Warner, one of the Warner Brothers, was the one that was really founding or really pushing that. He was uh, very interested in this technology, this Vitaphone technology. They invested so much money, a ridiculous amount of money into it to try and make it work. They got the jazz singer up and running. They they managed to get uh, theaters to install speakers. It was the same struggle that George Lucas had with digital projection in the 2000s, but uh, on a much larger scale, you know, moving from silent pictures to sound. And it worked. Unfortunately, Sam Warner suffered from, I believe, a brain aneurysm uh, on the eve of the New York premiere of The Jazz Singer in 1927. Never got to see the fruits of his labor, but that changed everything for not only Warner Brothers, but for the entire world, as now sound was synchronized to picture in 1927. You know, so I love the Warner Brothers. Um, you know, this film was executive produced by Jack Warner, uh, who is an interesting, interesting character. Uh, Jack Warner is kind of, you know, there's a documentary about him as being the sort of the last Hollywood mogul. But there's another documentary where they call him the clown prince of Hollywood. You know, he was a jokester. He was uh, he was a real 
man about town. He loved to hobnob with the stars. Um, he was famous for telling really awkward, bad jokes. Um, and uh, he pulled some really, really uh, questionable moves. I'll just tell you a few stories and you can decide for yourself. But, you know, Hal B. Wallace was a very powerful producer that was incredibly successful at Warner Brothers. And at the t around the time of Casablanca had signed a deal um, which gave him, you know, final say in casting and a few other stipulations in his contract that made Jack Warner very uncomfortable. And he was watching Hal Wallace very carefully. And one of the things to know about Casablanca is that Hal Wallace really controlled everything. Michael Curtiz was an amazing director, very skillful. Obviously, um, they had Arthur Edison, you know, behind the camera. They had an incredible team there. But Hal Wallace was kind of like, Hal Wallace was kind of the officer that told everyone what to do. You know, he was the one that put everyone in place. He effectively, you know, said, oh, it's going to be Bogart, it's going to be Curtiz, it's going to be Steiner, it's going to be Edison, it's going to be Ingrid Bergman. Um, and uh, Jack Warner, according to some sources, started to feel like, you know, there's a little bit too much Hal Wallace and not enough Jack Warner happening around the studio lot these days. And when this movie was nominated and then won for Best Picture, won an Academy Award for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. It's funny, I think it wasn't in 43, I think it was in 44. When it won the Academy Award, uh, normally, what is normal behavior is the producer goes up and accepts the Academy Award. Well, when Casablanca was announced, Halby Wallace stands up out of his seat and uh, before he can get to the aisle to walk down and accept the award, Jack Warner pops up out of his seat and runs up on the stage and gives the speech and takes the award for himself. Hal Wallace, according to his autobiography, was stuck in the in the in the row, couldn't get you know down to the aisle to even walk up because uh, Jack Warner's family was still sitting and not moving. All he could do is just stand there with his jaw on the floor and then slowly sit down in front of a group of all of his peers. And this is a very well-respected, very successful producer. And uh, and Jack Warner took the Oscar for Casablanca for himself. Um, that's that's a pretty tough story, uh, but that it happened. You know, and of course, uh, Hal Wallace, his his future with Warner Brothers was pretty much doomed after that. He decided, I mean, he moved on. Um, but uh, Hal Wallace is really the genius behind this, including, you know, having Max Steiner come on as the film composer of this movie. This is a great uh, scene here. Slightest idea. Rick is completely neutral about everything, and that takes in the field of women, too. You are not always so carefully neutral. We have a complete dossier on you. Richard Blaine, a magnate, 37, cannot return to his country. The reason is a little vague. We also know what you did in Paris, Mr. Blaine, and also we know why you left Paris. Don't worry, we are not going to broadcast it. Oh, my eyes really brown. You will forgive my curiosity, <laughs> Mr. Blaine. Rick is just great at deflecting any sort of heat. He and uh, and Prefect Renault, I mean, those two are just similar, written in a similar way in that they're able to just kind of dance right along the edge with the uh, Nazi party here, but never cross the line, uh, never make themselves targets but never really play along with the Nazis either. ...lies in the Prague newspapers until the very day we marched in it, even after that, he continued to print scandal sheets in his cellar. Of course, one must admit he has great courage. I admit he's There's a great example right there. And of course, what they're talking about is Victor Laszlo. They're talking about uh, the resistance leader that is going to enter the bar, played by Paul Henreid. 
And of course, he's going to be bringing his wife, Ilsa, played by Ingrid Bergman. Now, we don't know at this point, there they are, that uh, Ilsa and Rick Bogart used to be lovers in Paris. Paul Henreid uh, complained about being forever typecast. Oh, there's Dooley Wilson going, oh, there's trouble. This is our first sign as the audience that there's trouble as he's playing more diegetic music here. Oh, boy. But Paul Henreid, you know, complained that he was forever typecast after this movie and actually was very vocal on the set about, I would never say that, a, 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 you know, a resistance leader would certainly wouldn't be walking out into broad daylight in a double-breasted suit like this and sitting down at a table. He was, you know, vocal about that. Of course, he was, you know, also uh, had, had an aloof air to him, according to some reports on the set, you know, didn't think Bogart was a great actor. Uh, others thought he was snooty, but he is uh, really a fantastic actor. And, you know, he was uh, walking the walk here because he was an Austrian Born actor, here he is showing the resistance sign, and now he, now he wants to have a chat. But he was an Austrian-born actor who, again, fled the Nazis after they invaded Austria in 1938, so March of 1938, I believe. So, you know, he's really right for this, and he has sort of a gravitas to him. He is very, very effective in this role, very commanding. Merely to welcome you to Casablanca and to wish you a pleasant stay. It isn't often we have so Again, great casting here. Claude Rains against uh, against Paul Henry here. Forgive me, Captain. The present French administration hasn't always been so cordial. May I present Monsieur Zola? But Victor Laszlo apparently had escaped a concentration camp, and there's Ingrid the Bergman. Beautiful woman ever to visit Casablanca. That was a gross understatement. Ingrid Bergman is just, just stunning in this role. Just, her relationship with the camera is just incredible. Um, if you're interested, there are two incredible commentaries that you can listen to, both of which I've listened to. One is by the late Roger Ebert, and one is by, the, uh, as of this recording, the late Rudy Belmer, who was a film historian, very influential on the soundtrack show. He actually passed away a week ago as I'm recording this uh, at the age of 92, but um, they have incredible incredible um, commentaries on this movie. And one of them, in Roger Ebert's commentary, he talks about how he hosted uh, cinematographer Haskell Wexler, who's a you know, legendary cinematographer, of course. I know him, and you may know him as the cinematographer that really helped out George Lucas on American Graffiti. That's a whole other story, and I'll have to tell you sometime about how I you know, was at Skywalker Ranch watching a a, uh, a Q&A after a screening of American Graffiti with George Lucas and Ron Howard. That was incredible. But Haskell Wexler's name kept coming up because he was an incredible photographer, you know, uh, DP, and really helped keep that movie um, lit and in focus, American Graffiti. But one of, his, one of his things that he did was a complete analysis of Casablanca and how Ingrid Bergman was shot in every single shot of the movie. Um, she's normally shot showing the left side of her face. She's normally shot uh, with a little uh, shadow kind of curving down and to the left there um, to kind of accentuate her cheekbones. They, on close-ups, they would use this sort of uh, uh, gauze to soften her, you know, over the lens. We've been in difficult places before, haven't we? Oh, yeah, here's Tango Della Rosa. Funny how everything stops for this performance. 
possibly to add to kind of the uh, international flavor of Casablanca to show that there are refugees from all over the place, including Spain. Um, but it might also be referenced to the previous scene where um, Prefect Ronald said, hey, Rick, I know you used to run uh, weapons in Spain. But it's a nice moment to set some mood and, and show all of the actors that are in this bar. So he's going to go up to the bar and find out what that resistance uh, spy burger knows. And of course, Burger's going to say, hey, you know, Peter Laurie, who you're going to get those um, exit visas off of, he just got arrested. That's what he's about to go find out. And of course, Peter Laurie was here to sell these de Gaulle signed letters of transit to Laszlo and his wife, Ilsa. And uh, now it is falling through. Yes, monsieur. Champagne cocktail, please. I recognize you from the news photographs, Monsieur Laszlo. The concentration camp one is up to lose a little weight. <laughs> we read five times that you were killed in five different places. Yes, you see, it was true every single time. Thank heaven I found you, Berger. I'm looking for a man by the name of One thing the music also does here is it provides cover for secret conversations because there's, you know, there's noise. Everyone's listening to the singer. They're not listening to these two French resistance who are having a conversation in hushed tones. And of course, cigarettes everywhere. Boy, cameras loved cigarettes. Now, Roger Ebert said, I only approve of smoking in the movies. It's funny. I guess because it gives depth. I don't know. There's some more lighting moves, as you can see, by Arthur Edison. And here's where uh, the scene that Steiner objected to the most is about to start. And of course, it has to do with As Time Goes By. The song by Herman Hupfeld from 1931, I believe, from a play called Everyone's Welcome. And, um, you know, the thing about Herman Hupfeld and, and Max Steiner, it occurred to me, I was actually talking to a friend of mine about it, it occurred to me that, you know, Steiner could come across as being somewhat grumpy or, you know, greedy or something in the story of, oh, I hate this. Well, why? Well, because I don't make any money off of it. But really, to to really um, stick up for Steiner, I, I think I need to give an alternate perspective on this. As Time Goes By was written in 1931. This movie is being shot in 1942. He's starting his film scoring in August of 42. So he's being told by Hal Wallace, hey, I want you to score this. Here's your new assignment. He has to do it whether he likes it or not. And by the way, you have to, you have to deal with this song as time goes by. Wait, wait, why can't I just write my own song? Which was a common thing that, uh, that film composers would do. You know, because uh, you, could, you could get a lot of royalties and make decent money off of a song. Film score cues, not so much. And he said, no, you have to do it because of this scene right here. For all time's sake. I don't know what you mean, Miss Elsa. Play it, Sam. Play as time goes by. She well, says the, the title of the song in the scene, and now she hums it. So now, it, now it's committed to film. You know, so in order to change it, you would have to reshoot all this. You'd have to bring everybody else back in, including Ingrid Bergman, who was on loan from David O. Selznick from MGM and uh, only had eight weeks to work on Casablanca. And now here's the song as time goes by. 
But you know, if you're Max Steiner, who by the way, at this point had been working for Warner Brothers for so long and had really been, you know, you could argue mistreated. Um, in 1939, when he went to go work on Gone with the Wind, they said, fine, you can do it, but you have to keep up with your workload. Rather than reassign it to another composer, they made Steiner do everything he was supposed to do at Warner Brothers and do Gone with the Wind to the point where Steiner was taking uppers that he was prescribed by his physicians just so he could stay awake and work 20 hour days. So here's a guy that had really, really been abused by the Hollywood studio system and now doesn't get to place a song in this movie and has to be... Oh, now, here we hear Elsa's chord. Followed by a modified version of As Time Goes By. Uh-oh, the look between these two. And this continues in this scene I covered in the last episode. But it would be like saying to, like, Michael Giacchino, Hey, Michael Giacchino, we want you to do this new uh, Pixar film, um, but you have to write the entire score around I Saw the Sign by Ace of Base. Or Mambo Number 5. Wait, I don't want to... Why? Well, we shot it that way. Yeah, but it's Mambo Number 5, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, when you look at it in those terms, Max Steiner was not wrong to be grumpy about it. You know, here's a guy who had just completed Now Voyager, was about to win an Academy Award for it, had a song placed in it with Paul Henry as, as the star of it as well, with Betty Davis. And now we hear as time goes by in the background here. But again, interrupted at the mention of Nazis right here. But of course, that was the day the Germans marched into Paris. This really is the beginning of Max Steiner in this movie, really hammering us with As Time Goes By as a motif for this movie, as, as sort of the thematic melody of this movie. And, and you hear it in so many different permutations. But yeah, Max Steiner, you know, when you look at it in that way, he's really not, he's really not far off. So it is. And we have a curfew here in Casablanca. It would never do for the chief of police to be found drinking after hours and have to find himself. I hope you never say you're welcome. Not at all. Your check, sir. As time goes by, continues. It's been a very interesting evening. I'll call you a cab. Gasoline rationing, time of night. You'll come again. Anytime. There it is again in low strings. I will. There's still nobody in the world who can play. As time goes by. And there she mentions it again by name. A long time. He shoots it down. Good night. Good night. As we hear the melody trail off. (laughs) Sinking chromatically as Rick sinks into the seat there. It's really a great musical moment. There we have it again on, on, uh, sounds like a chest. Something is afoot. Nice minor chord there. And now we're late at night. The signs go off and we have this famous scene with Rick getting drunk at the bar by himself. Now look at the lighting here. Very, very dark. And you see the, uh, the lines on the, on the top left of the screen, side of the screen, like a cage. Also, there's this wonderful thing that Roger Ebert points out, which is this roving spotlight that goes through Casablanca, which doesn't make really any sense. Like, who are they looking for? Or is it coming from the airport? The Van Nuys airport, by the way. I don't know. But um, one of the nice uh, things that they did to add tension in the scene and also to throw some light on on uh, Bogart and uh, Dooley Wilson here 
is add this roving spotlight, and it's pretty much all throughout Casablanca in the nighttime scenes. Just to kind of give you this idea that it's a police state, that our characters are trapped, and it just adds a subtle tension. It's a very famous scene. I'm staying right here. And now Dooley Wilson sits down. I grab Ugotti, then she walks in. Well, where it goes, one in, one Starts out. Starts playing. Sam. Yes, boss. It's December 1941 in Casablanca. What time is it in New York? What? My watch stopped. I bet they're asleep in New York. That line, I bet they're asleep in New York, is uh, kind of a Warner Brothers commentary on the, the world being asleep to the atrocities of the Nazis. Everyone's asleep in America. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world. Of course, that had all changed after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Very famous line with all the gin joints. In all the world, she had to walk into mine. Now he asked him to play as time goes by, of course. You know, in a lot of ways, this, this whole movie is a metaphor for waking up to the call against the Nazis. You know, Sam is beaten down and he is just taking the beating. All the refugees are taking the beating, and in this movie, they fight back. Ilsa, and losing Ilsa, she, he loses Ilsa because of the Nazi invasion of Paris. Anyway, and now, you know, what's interesting is if you listen very carefully, you hear Steiner start to sneak in. It's a great thing where <laughs> Bogart's about to say something and decides against it, but you hear the strings sneak in in the background as Dooley Wilson's playing here. Again, combining diegetic music with film score music. I'll get back to my story in a second, but we got to talk about the music of this Paris flashback here. The strings take over, and now we have the art. L'Arc de Triomphe. Yeah, that's Paris. B-roll of Paris. And now we have this really cheesy shot, wonderful shot of them driving, wind blowing through their hair. He's driving in front of uh, the Arc de Triomphe and the Champs-Élysées, and it just fades into them driving through the country. It's a dream sequence, and you know, uh, it doesn't matter that it's it's uh, very theatrical. I mean, it really does. This whole thing feels like a play. You can feel the sets. You know, this is another again uh, visual effects shot. They're on the River Seine. Of course, they're not there at all. Uh, might be rear projection. I'm not sure. And now fixing flowers. And Max Steiner giving us as time goes by, weaved in with his own melodies here, and then finally settling down making way for dialogue. Who are you really, and what were you before? What did you do, and what did you think, huh? Steiner once called no film scoring a concerto for dialogue, because he would play around the dialogue. He, he, would, he would fit things in between lines, and he gets cut off by that, by that piano there into Perfidia here as they're dancing at the nightclub. Uh, apparently, um, Bogart hated that shot because he didn't think he was a good dancer. And another interesting fact is that Ingrid Bergman was a little taller than Bogart. Um, she was uh, very tall, so they all constantly had to find ways of of making him appear uh, a little taller than he was. Um, this isn't a great example. He's propped up on pillows, and when she comes to sit down, she kind of slumps down into the couch. In America, they'd bring only a penny. But now, of course, Max Steiner has taken over again. I'm willing to be overcharged. Tell me. And we get as time goes by. Well, I was wondering. Yes. 
This whole sequence is driven by as time goes by. Waiting for me. Come along. Why, there is no other man in my life? Uh-huh. Well, that's easy. There was. He's dead. This is where we find out. I'm sorry for asking. That Victor I'm Laszlo is dead. Said no questions. Well, is she lying? We don't know. Take care of all our questions. More as time goes by. And then now, we immediately cut to this very harsh music to represent the uh, invasion of Paris by the Nazis. I believe some of it actually did come from Confessions of a Nazi Spy, which, by the way, um, Confessions of a Nazi Spy was ghostwritten by Max Steiner, who decided not to take credit for it because he still had family in, uh, in Austria at the time, and he did not want any repercussions to be visited upon them. And here's that same Casablanca street, you know, with Ingrid Bergman and Bogart at a cafe. It's just redressed to look like Paris. But it's the same, exact same street where they shot the Casablanca uh, street exterior at the beginning of the movie. But, um, but anyway, Steiner did not take credit for Confessions of a Nazi Spy, but some of his music did wind up in this sequence. I'm on that blacklist already. <laughs> They're a roll of honor. And now we hear a very rare appearance of the, uh, I guess, the B section of As Time Goes By. Moonlight and love songs never out of date. I used to sing this song. Actually, I had a band, a swing band in Northern California that played weddings and wineries and restaurants and all kinds of things and sang this song for years. Um, but now that they're at La Belle Aurore and um, she is going through something a little different here now. And uh, Ingrid Bergman is just fantastic. There's another one of those filtered shots that I was mentioning, that close-up. Dooley Wilson singing the theme song as she stares off into space. Henri wants us to finish this bottle and then three more. He says he'll water his garden with champagne before he let the Germans drink it. <laughs> this yeah, so Paris is falling, and uh, they're enjoying the spoils of it, I guess. They know they have to get out of town, but... Uh, they're going to drink all the wine in the in the uh, in the place first, and of course there is a, a really wonderful modified version. As time goes by, interrupted by that uh, brutal chord here for the announcement that the uh, the Germans are coming, like imminently, like you can hear the cannons. It's interesting they don't subtitle any of the languages in this movie. They say they expect to be in Paris tomorrow. Yeah, so uh, instead they have uh, Ingrid Bergman translate. Marching in. With the whole world crumbling, we picked this time to fall in love. Yeah, it's pretty bad timing. Where were you, say, ten years ago? Ten years ago? Let's see. Yes, I was having a brace put on my teeth. How are you? Looking for a job. There's a little hint of as time goes by. Cannon fire. Is that cannon fire? Or is it my heart pounding? Well, as time goes by. Judging for the sound, only about 35 miles away. Again with those strings, playing those that sort of portamento line. Really lush. Here, here, drink up. We'll never finish the other three. Germans will be here pretty soon now, and they'll come looking for you. 
And don't forget there's a price on your head. A low tone, kind of keeping the suspense, you know, going. Max Steiner still playing that low note at the bottom. I know so very little. More as time goes by. I know very little about you. It's hard for me to think of another film score that hammers us with the main theme as much as this one does. Just again and again and again. It's almost like variations on a theme, like something Mozart would do. Hotel at 4:30. No, no, not at my hotel. I, I have things to do in the city before I leave. I'll meet you at the station. All right. And now, of course, it's just you know, it's falling chromatically. Married, Marge. I mean, literally all of the thematic material in this scene is driven from that melody. And just, you know, the first, like, eight bars of it. Why not? The captain on a ship can. It doesn't seem fair that... She's getting upset. Hey. Hey, what's wrong, kid? I love you so much. You must remember this. A kiss is still a kiss. It's almost like Steiner was making a point. If you're going to make me use this song, I am going to use this song. If something should keep us apart, wherever they put you and wherever I'll be, I want you to... Of course, acting styles have changed over the years, and this is considered old-fashioned, but Ingrid Bergman just is so good. They're both so good in this movie and have a tremendous amount of chemistry, whatever chemistry is. You know, it's a... uh, hard to describe but it, these two just work and of course Max Steiner hitting that that uh, glass of champagne hitting the table there Mickey Mousing that and now we have that sort of refugee uh, chord again that we heard at the top during the refugee trail sequence and La Marseillaise is played in a minor key in A minor here And what we're about to hear is an incredible version of As Time Goes By. This is sort of the, I think, the highest, most acute point of, of Rick's pain. Comes when she says, I'm not showing up. And, and here we have it. Amarciers. And As Time Goes By. One event is causing the other. And I misspoke in my last episode. She doesn't actually give an explanation, per se. She just says, I can't be there and I can't ever see you, basically. Nice continuity error here suddenly as you cut his jackets dry. I love how Bogart just takes the letter and just throws it as the camera. I love that. And now we cut back and Dooley Wilson's playing that piano. He stops and it kind of interrupts the dream sequence. And this next sequence is just a wonderful, uh, wonderful musical sequence. Uh, There's that Ilsa chord again. And the way that she's lit with that spotlight to kind of justify the lighting, but the way she's lit makes her look like she's a ghost or maybe more aptly put an angel, you know, in his eyes. But uh, the music kind of falls. There's tremendous anger here. There's that spotlight again. But you know, they could never say because of the production code, they could never say that the two slept together in Paris. They could never show anything. Although, you know, 
people back then filled in the blanks. You know, I mean, there was that scene where she was in her bathrobe, um, you know, and he was sitting on the couch. And so, you know, what are they suggesting there? Um, but they could never say it. They, could, they had to hint at everything. We get a little bit of as time goes by here. I didn't count the days. Well, I did. Every one of them. Yeah. Mostly I remember the last one. He thinks that he cares and she didn't. He doesn't know why she left. Now, what's interesting is we're going to get another melody here, which feels like an angelic march when she starts talking about Victor Laszlo, someone that she met in her youth. And um, it really, it, it starts to, to make a regular appearance in this movie from here on out. It's about a girl who had just come to Paris from her home in Oslo. Right here. At the house of some friends, she met a man about whom she had heard her whole life. A very great and courageous man. This melody. He opened up for her a whole beautiful world bum, of bum, knowledge bum. and thoughts and ideals. Everything she knew or whatever became... It kind of represents him. the resistance. And it she represents uh, Victor Laszlo, Paul Henry's character. With the feeling she supposed was love. She's trying to start to yeah, tell him. very pretty. But it's interrupted. I heard a story once. As a matter of fact, I've heard a lot of stories in my time. They went along with the sound of a tinny piano playing in the parlor downstairs. Tinny piano on the plane in the parlor downstairs and hearing a lot of sad stories. It always Is kind of a reference, a veiled reference to a brothel. Neither one of our stories is very funny. Again, getting around the production code. Who was it you left me for? Was it Laszlo or were there others in between? Aren't you the kind that tells? But he's basically dealing her incredible insults here, you know, by basically making the the comparison to a brothel and essentially calling her a whore, and um, in a very sort of 1942 sort of way. And of course, immediately regrets it as she storms out. And we hear this very tortured version of it as time goes by, followed by La Marseillaise as we go to black here. And we cut to Captain Renault's office. I strongly here. suspect that you got you left the letters of transit with Mr. Blaine. I would suggest you search the cafe immediately and thoroughly. If Rick has the letters, he's much too smart to let you find them there. You give him credit for too much cleverness. My impression was that he's just another blundering American. But you know, this whole idea that Casablanca is a place of desperation and that uh, Rick has seen some some terrible things actually comes up again in the script later. And um, one of the things that uh, is really interesting about Warner Brothers is that they used to write everything down. Um, they have a very, very, very clear paper trail that you can research at the uh, Warner Brothers archive at uh, USC, University of Southern California. And you can used to say at the bottom of all of those, you know, that, um, you know, if you have something to say, please write it down. At the bottom of all these memos, they had like the slogan that said, Verbal communication causes misunderstandings and delays. And so if something was important that needed to be said, you needed to write it down. So you could see all of these memos going back and forth all the time, you know, and these all exist in the Warner Brothers archive. So it reveals a lot of interesting stories. And some of the interesting stories that it reveals is that they had huge problems with the script, trying to adapt the play, Everyone Comes to Rick's, to a movie because of the production code. Things like that last scene where he talks about sad stories that go along with a tinny piano in a parlor, and a lot of young women tell these sad stories about how they got into this life. It's alluded to and never outright said. Another thing that's always alluded to and never outright said is that Claude Rains's character is a bit of a ladies' man, and um, you know takes advantage of his position. And in this way, he's actually a horrible human being. You know, he if 
there's some someone in a horrible situation that wants to get out of Casablanca, like a young lady, he will exchange a exit visa for certain favors, if you know what I mean. And um, it's never outright said in this movie, but it is heavily, heavily implied. We'll come up on that again later as there's a character actually coming up in the second half of this movie. Um, there's a character that is essentially asking Rick for advice about how she can get out of Casablanca, she and her new husband, and if she just basically sleeps with Prefect Renault, he'll give them exit visas because they can't afford to buy them on the black market, essentially, or they can't buy them from some shady character. So she's wondering if her husband would ever forgive her for doing that if it meant that they would go on to live a happy life in America. It's all there on the screen, and it's all not there on the screen at the same time. And you can actually trace these conversations in the script process um, because of a lot of the memos that went went around back and forth. In fact, there's a great story where you know they had to go to David O. Selznick to convince him to let Ingrid Bergman appear in the film because she was under contract to him. And they decided to have the Epstein twins, who were the two writers on it, go and and just kind of give a verbal idea of what the story was about because they couldn't send over a screenplay because there were so many problems because of the of the Hollywood production code. So I think that's another reason why this movie has lasted so long is because it deals with very adult themes and you can see them on the screen at a time where a lot of movies were censored in a way that didn't give them any long-lasting teeth about very real issues. And when you consider that this was one of 50 movies that Warner Brothers made that year, it's amazing that we're still talking about it. You know, that means that there were hundreds of movies coming out of Hollywood every year. And, you know, most of us, I think, would be hard-pressed to name even five that we've seen and loved in one year that came out of Warner Brothers, let alone Warner Brothers and Universal and MGM, Columbia, RKO, whatever. This is a job for Senor Ferrari. Ferrari? It can be most helpful to know Senor Ferrari. He probably has a monopoly on the black market here. You will find him over there at the Blue Parrot. Thanks. So yeah, here's that couple that I was talking about, you know, the young woman and uh, her husband trying to get out. And here is actor Sidney Greenstreet, of course, who first appeared uh, in an American film, The Maltese Falcon. Uh, really, really incredible character actor uh, who plays uh, Ferrari and, of course, wants to... He's, he owns a different cafe and wants to buy... Rick's Cafe American oh, from him. You're a fat hypocrite. You don't feel any sorrier for Ugarty than I do. Of course not. What upsets me is the fact that Ugarty is dead. No one knows whether... Talking about Peter Lorre's character, Ugarty. And, uh, you know, there was an earlier scene where we saw Rick hide those letters of transit from Ugarty in the piano, inside uh, Sam's piano. So Rick actually has the letters of transit still, long after Ugarty's been arrested. Naturally, there'll be a few incidental expenses. And, uh, you know, this is another example of people saying things on the slide. They don't really say what they mean. They speak in, in code here. But he wants to buy those letters of transit, and he believes that Rick has them. He is right, of course. He does have them. Don't be a fool. Take me into confidence. You need a partner. Excuse me. I'll be getting back. Morning. Senor Ferrari is the fat gent at the table. 
You will not find a treasure like this in all Morocco, mademoiselle. Only 700 francs. You're being cheated. Doesn't matter, thank you. Ah, the lady's a friend of Rips. For friends of Rips, we have a small discount. Did I say 700 francs? You can have it for 200. I'm sorry I was in no condition to receive you when you called on me last night. Doesn't matter. It's incredible costuming here, too. Both of them in hats, you know, which kind of gives them the ability to shade their eyes and their faces, you know, out of the light and uh, cast a, a really interesting shadow uh, that the camera picks up and uh, just kind of adds to the drama here. You can tell me now I'm reasonably sober. That hat kind of protects her a little bit from him. I'm stuck with a railway ticket. I think I'm entitled to know. Last night I saw what has happened to you. The Rick I knew in Paris, I could tell him he'd understand. But the one who looked at me with such hatred... Just two fabulous actors. And as I was saying before, you know, acting styles have changed. I believe it was 1951. Streetcar Named Desire came out, which has, a, by the way, a wonderful groundbreaking score by Alex North, which we'll cover at a later date. But uh, one of the most remarkable things about that movie was Marlon Brando's performance. Less than a decade after this movie, you know, was huge. But Brando's performance was so naturalistic um, that film critics complained because they thought he was mumbling on screen. They thought he was giving a performance that was almost tossed away in certain scenes. Um, but what he was doing was bringing a level of authenticity, you know, his, to his ear and, you know, I think to, to modern ears, he really, really felt like a real person on screen. And what we saw in the middle of the 20th century, especially in the 1950s and into, you know, by the time you were in the 1960s, was a complete shift in popular acting style to where, you know, this sort of very presentational theatrical style that we're watching here in Casablanca was fell out of favor for a much more naturalized style. So I think it's one of the reasons why we look at old movies like this and we just feel like, why is everyone speaking like the, you know, from the 1940s and everything seems so phony and I'm not really sure what we're supposed to make of all of this. You know, it, it's just because um, tastes changed, essentially. And of course, here we're hearing more diegetic music in the background, adding to the milieu of Casablanca. And of course, they're trying to figure out how to get out of there, and they're trying to track down those papers, those letters of transit. He's saying, if we only get one, you go and I'll stay. She's saying, no. Yes, I would. When I had trouble getting out of Lille. Yeah, he's lying. Why didn't you leave me there? And when I was sick in Marseille and held you up for two weeks... And you he would never leave without her. So we're establishing in this scene that these two really do love each other, that they have a real marriage, which I think is really important. And it's very interesting because this is a love triangle here, and uh, you know, there's been a lot of speculation, and one of, the, one of the biggest, I guess, urban legends about this movie is that nobody knew how they were going to end it how this love triangle was going to end that they set up. They didn't know who was going to get the girl, as they used to say. Uh, they didn't know if Paul Henry and Ilsa would end up together or if uh, Ilsa would end up with Rick. But, you know, other people kind of uh, refute this and say it was always a non-issue, again, because of the Hollywood production code, because you could never have a married woman run off with another man on screen. It would, it would get censored. So just based on the production code alone, it dictated that, spoiler alert, 
These two would always stay together. The married couple would always stay together. Even though it looks very much like, you know, especially in the back half of this movie, that she is going to leave her husband for Rick, who she was in love with. You know, but it is a really interesting... It's such an interesting movie because she's really thrown in an impossible situation here. You know, the war is total chaos and it's so disruptive to her life. I mean, here she is married to this man who she just loves, this uh, French resistance leader who is captured and put in a concentration camp and she is told he is dead, only to find out later that he's alive. But she's already fallen in love with another man. And now she's put in this impossible situation. Thanks for everything. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye, sir. It has been a pleasure to meet you. I'm sorry. It's a great bit there. Look at that look of hidden disdain by the singer as they come by, as the Nazis enter. This second act here, this second night at Rick's, is probably my favorite uh, part of the entire movie. Again, more more diegetic music here. There's some going over. Your man gave my place this afternoon. We just barely got cleaned up in time to open. This music is just between the diegetic diegetic music and the film score. There's a lot of music in this movie. Impresses Germans. Rick, have you got those letters of transit? Lawyer, you pro Vichy or free French? Serves me right for asking a direct question. The subject is closed. Looks like you're a little late. So here Yvonne comes in. This was someone that Rick was dating, and now Yvonne enters Rick's club with a Nazi soldier, arm in arm. Gives him a look. Now here, again, is uh, Renault talking about how he wants to pick up on her and, you know, being very much a vulture here. And now she is in just such a great mood here. You know, and she's really set up to be this kind of shallow, vindictive character, you know, as a stereotype, and she's not, you know. What did you say? Would you kindly repeat it? She's really just in over her head here. We don't know a lot about this character. I mean, that's the reality. We don't know a lot about her, um, you know, as a background character. Rick breaks it up. He says, lay off politics. He sticks his neck out for no one. The situation is not as much under control as you believe. But, uh, of course, we know that's not true. We cannot regulate the feelings of our people. Captain, are you entirely certain which side you're on? I have no conviction, if that's what you mean. Again, here is Renal playing a very, very dangerous game with the Nazis. Surely the right doesn't admit that possibility. We are concerned about more than Casablanca. We know that every friend... Two really, really great actors here. ...traitors. Waiting for their chance, waiting perhaps for a leader. A leader? Like Laszlo? Mm-hmm. I have been thinking. It is too dangerous if you let him go. It, may be it really is uh, interesting, too, in this movie, how there's some sort of beginning of the war um, naivete happening here. That they don't, the Nazis wouldn't just snatch this guy up as soon as they saw him is a, a bit of wishful thinking. This is a really sweet scene here. There's two... Uh, Two actors that are speaking English because they're moving to America. Both of those actors that you're seeing on the right were both famous. Actually, all three of them were famous back in Europe and all left because of the Nazis. So what they're actually talking about, moving to America and speaking English, they lived it. They all lived it. All three of these actors. And uh, that, cheer, that, uh, that toast there to America was very real for them. Um, you know, and again, she was 
can watch. Very, very, uh, a very famous and well-respected actor in Germany. Along beautifully in America. <laughs> How's Lady Luck treating you? And uh, here's the scene I was talking about. This actor, whose name is Joy Page, uh, was actually the uh, stepdaughter of Jack Warner. But here's this incredible scene here. Yes. Could I speak to you for just a moment, please? How'd you get in here? You're underage. I came with Captain Reno. I should have known. My husband is with me, too. He is. Well, Captain Reno's getting broad-minded. Sit down. See, now, what Bogart's dialogue is implying is, is filled with innuendo there. And very dark. What kind of a man is Captain Reno? Oh, he's just like any other man, only more so. No, I mean... <laughs> Is he very, very dark line. Oh, just a minute. Who told you to ask me that? He did. Captain Reynolds did. I thought so. Where's your husband? At the roulette table. Trying to win enough for our exit visas. Oh, of course, he's losing. It's a How long have you been married? Eight weeks. We come from Bulgaria. Oh, things are very bad there, monsieur. The devil has the people by the throat. So, Jan and I, we... We did not want our children to grow up in such a country. And so you decided to go to America? Yes, but we have not much money, and traveling is so expensive and difficult. It was much more than we thought to get here. And then Captain Renault sees us, Oof. and he is so kind, he wants to help us. Yes, I'll bet. Yeah, he tells me he'll give us an exit visa, but... Suggesting but what Renault no is really up to. Does he know that? Oh, yes. And he's still willing to give you a visa? Yes, monsieur. And you want to know... Will he keep his word? He always has. Oh. But by saying that, he knows he's Monsieur, dooming her to... You are a man. If someone loved you very much... The unwanted advances of Renault. ...that she wanted in the world. That she will reluctantly she have to agree to. to. make certain of it. Could you forgive her? Nobody ever loved me that much. And he never knew. And the girl kept this bad thing locked in her heart. That would be all right, wouldn't it? Do you want my advice? She's asking. Please. Go back to Bulgaria. Moral guidance oh, here. You know what it means to us to leave Europe to get to America. Oh, but if Jan should find out, he is such a boy. In many ways, I, I am so much older than he is. Yes, well, everybody in Casablanca has problems. Should she sell herself to Renault in order to get passage to America? And he doesn't answer. But he takes action. First sign that Rick is starting to change and wanting to fight the situation he's in. Sam, I suppose he means to you, Paris, of well, happier days. He does. Could we have a table close to him? As far away from Major Strasse as possible. And now that Ilse has walked in, Rick's going to ask Sam to play as time goes by. A musical cue that is now totally associated with characters. There it is mentioned again as time goes by. He tells Sam to play it. Again. <laughs> now this actor, Marcel Dalio, very famous in France again. But uh, Taking a supporting, small supporting part in America. And now we see Rick do something we've never seen him do before. Stick his neck out for somebody, which he famously does not do. 
Marquons les jeux, mesdames et messieurs. Les jeux sont faits. La partie continue. Marquons les jeux. Fini. 22. Noir, père et passe. 22. And the staff sees this, but so does Renault. Tells him to put it all on 22. The game is fixed. He's basically using his casino to help this young couple out, making, making an exception. Her story's touched him. So now we've learned as an audience, here's a man, you know, with a hard exterior that actually does want to do the right thing. How are we doing tonight? Well, uh, a couple of thousand less than I thought there would be. <laughs> Makes a comment. Winks. She thanks him. But he fends it off. It's such a wonderful and touching scene. And like, you know, if you just see through the, the style of the time, you realize just how heavy some of the themes in this movie are. No thanks, Carl. Monsieur Rick. Renal is like, oh man, that's dangerous. He also realizes that his his uh, prey has been taken from him. Well, maybe not so strange. I'll see you in the morning. Thank you so much, Captain Hard to reconcile when you consider what a likable actor Claude Rains is, but that character is really despicable. And now all of the uh, all the staff hear about it, and they just love him for it because they're all refugees. As I suspected, you're a rank sentimentalist. Yeah, why? Why do you interfere with my little romances? Put it down as a gesture to love. Well, I forgive you this time, but I'll be in tomorrow night with a breathtaking blonde. Make me very happy if she loses. Mr. Blaine, I want to talk to you. Go ahead. Well, isn't there some other place? So we were talking about voices earlier with Peter Lorre. You know, the voices of these actors, you know, and the and the training that they have. If you listen to Bogart speak, it's not that he has a deep voice, it's that he's got that cut. He's got this sort of cut in his voice. Much louder than I can do, but this uh very, very prominent cut in his voice, which just sticks right in that mid-range, which is perfect for the technology of the time. This very analog technology where the highs are kind of kind of muted out and the low end, low mid-range is kind of boomy. It's that sort of analog sound of movies from the 1930s and 40s. And even beyond, as uh, recording technology got better. But it definitely has a sound of the era, and Bogart's voice is perfect for that era. I appreciate it, but I don't accept it. I'll raise it to 200,000. My friends, you could make it a million francs or three. My answer would still be the same. There must be some reason why you won't let me have them. There is. I suggest that you ask your wife. Ooh. I beg your pardon? I said, ask your wife. My wife? Yes. Now this scene, as they play... It's not Deutschland lead, you know, uh, the German national anthem, but it's Die Wacht am Rhein. And he sees them playing down there. They've taken over Sam's piano and they're just playing, all the Germans sitting in a corner, a little alcove there, raising glasses, getting drunk. And you look over at all the refugees and they're just kind of looking around. Even Renald kind of looks like blech. But man, Laszlo comes in and Paul Henry just has the like most stern look on his face. 
Even Yvonne is getting drunk seeing this. Now, this is where I think you learn so much about all of these characters. Now, look over at Rick. Rick nods, and they start to play. And these shots are so real. All of these people immediately start singing and standing up. Conrad Veidt, as Major Strasser, tries to get them to sing louder. He's getting angry. But all of these extras in this movie, their reactions are, are, are very real. And, man, check out Yvonne in this next shot. This is where my heart just broke for her. Just real tears streaming down her face. And that's when you realize this is a person that is just in so much pain. Paul Henry, too, in that shot, too. Oh, man, he's just shaking and singing his heart out. The level of authenticity in that scene and a Viva la France, I mean, it's what makes it one of the most classic scenes in, in Hollywood history, in the golden age of Hollywood. And here we have Deutsche Line. And then it stops right as he stops speaking. But yeah, the, the Nazi theme is kind of based on Deutschland, the uh, German national anthem. Such a good time. Yes, much too good a time. The place is to be closed. But I have no excuse to close it. Find one. Again, in between all the dialogue, Steiner operating in between all the dialogue, using the negative space of of the spoken word for music. It's a great line. find that gambling is going on in here. You're winning, sir. Oh, thank you very much. Everybody out at once. Deutschland lead again. That's the third time it's played as uh, Conrad Veidt approaches Ilsa. Deutschland lead in the background by Max Steiner. Occupied France. Twice. That's now the fifth time we've heard it. You may recall what German guarantees have been worth in the past. And now he turns Deutschland lead into as time goes by. It's it's just, Max Steiner's genius. You have already observed that in Casablanca human life is cheap. Good night, mademoiselle. Oh, she's mad. Now we have a modified version of that lovely sort of resistance march that we heard earlier. You know, but it's open-ended. It's left in suspension, unresolved. And here we have a little bit more mysterious version playing. Look at the lighting here. So many shadows. Again, they're in a cage. And now a very menacing version of that march. Our faithful friend is still there. Victor, please don't resistance the march, kind of. Tonight. You know, that little resistance march and La Marseillaise and As Time Goes By and Deutschland Lied, I feel like those are really the four themes that we hear in this movie. I'm frightened too. Shall I remain here in the hotel room hiding? Or shall I carry on the best I can? Whatever I'd say, you would carry on. Victor, why don't you tell me about Rick? What did you find out? As soon as she mentions Rick, you hear as time goes by. Yes. As time by, it sounds like either uh, Celli in their high range or viola. Probably Celli. Did he give any reason? He suggested Possibly both. 
Ask me. Yes, he said, uh, ask your wife. I don't know why he said that. But I mean, this is a this is very literal classic film scoring. You know, when it's when it's the Germans, it's Deutschland lead. When it's I mean, these these motifs are following these characters every word and just changing on a dime. You know, one of the reasons why I wanted to do Raiders of the Lost Ark was to really point out that technique. And and here we're seeing Max Steiner doing it in his prime with this movie. Yes, Victor, I was. Soon as he says, were you lonely in Paris, you get a solo string playing as time goes by. Set in kind of a minor mode. No, Victor, there isn't. Then the rest of the the, uh, orchestra or string section comes in. Yes. Yes. But now we have that march again when he starts speaking. Victor, whatever I do, will you believe that I... You don't even have to say it. The nobility of Victor Laszlo. Good night, Dan. There it is again. Now it's kind of combined with as time goes by. It's Victor. It's wonderful. Yes, dear. Be careful. That was an interesting, it was kind of a Deutschland lead, but with high strings as she says, be careful. And it ends with the resistance march and sort of a daring, daring entrance there, or exit there. There he goes, he's going to a resistance meeting. You think you're about to get, as time goes by in the, in the base, but it turns out to just be suspense suspense music here. Now you get it full on as time goes by, which we already know, that means she's gonna go see Rick. And here's Rick, they're closed down. The Nazis have closed them down. They're going over finances. How long can they afford to stay open, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe I won't have to. A bribe has worked before. In the meantime, everybody stays on salary. Thank you, Eric. Sasha will be happy to hear it. I owe him money. <laughs> you finish locking up, will you, Carl? I will. Then I am going to the meeting. Don't of tell the... me where you're going. There's that meeting. Rick doesn't want to know. It's the same meeting that Laszlo's going to. Good night, Mr. Rick. There's Ilsa's chord for the third time in the movie. How did you get in? And in fact, that same descending string line from before. Are they going to have a repeat of their previous meeting? Didn't go so well. Your unexpected visit isn't connected by any chance with the letters of transit. Seems as long as I have those letters, I'll never be lonely. You can ask any price you want, but you must give me those letters. I went all through that with your husband. It's no deal. But I know how you feel about me, but I'm asking you to put your feelings aside for something more important. Do I have to hear again what a great man your husband is, what an important cause he's fighting for? It was your cause. These two are just fabulous in, way, you are in this fighting scene. For the same thing. I'm not fighting for anything anymore. Music stops. Myself. I'm the only cause I'm interested in. That's not true. Come on, Rick. Come on. That's what she should say. Come on. We loved each other once. 
If those days meant anything at all. Yeah, kind of going back to uh, memories of Paris. Again, reusing musical passages from that first scene when she came to the bar and Rick was drunk. No, no. You want to feel sorry for yourself, don't you? There's so much at stake, all you can think of is your own feeling. Oof. One woman has hurt you and you take your revenge on the rest of the world. You're a, you're a coward and weakling. No. No, Richard, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but, but you you are our last hope. If you don't help us, Victor Laszlo will die in Casablanca. What of it? I'm going to die in Casablanca. It's a good spot for it. I almost forget I'm doing a commentary here. I get wrapped up into this scene. But these two actors just doing amazing work here. The music swells. And she's got a gun. And he hits that. All right. Tremolo strings. What's going to happen? I tried everything. Now I want those letters. Yeah, the low strings reminding us of... I don't have to. I got them right here. As time goes by. Put them on the table. Yeah, the music's really mixed down there, but man, it's the strings are going nuts. All right, I'll make it easier for you. Go ahead and shoot. Interesting that the sort of um, we get the resistance march in there when he's like, "Go ahead and shoot," by the horns. I tried to stay away. She can't do it. She can't shoot him. I thought I would never see you again. The music is following every twist and turn of this scene. Must remember this. They're gonna kiss. What are we building towards here? You knew how much I loved you. There it is. How much I still love you. Yeah, presented as this, it's presented in the song. But left still unresolved at the end. That's a that's a genius scene by Max Steiner. So many different themes going on there, scoring every moment. Long after we were married, that Victor went back to Czechoslovakia. And now we find out more about the backstory. You know, I was telling stories about Jack Warner before. Um, there's another really heartbreaking story about Jack Warner that I just think is fascinating, which is that, you know, he was, I think, never really felt like he got the respect due to him by his uh, brother, Harry, who was really kind of the one running, running the finances of the place and, and uh, was always looking for more authority, looking for more power, apparently. And in... 1956 or so, he went to his brothers, Jack Warner went to his brothers and said, we have an offer on the table to sell the studio, to sell Warner Brothers. And I think we should take it. It's a really good offer. You know, we've been doing this now for years. It was now in the 1950s. They'd been doing this for 30 years. And I think we should take it. He applied a lot of pressure to his family to look over the deal. And they all decided, yeah, let's sell. We're going to sell the company. And uh, we'll make a lot of money. You know, money was tight in the 1950s because of television. So they did. They all agreed to sell. Well, unbeknownst to them, Jack Warner had a a deal going with one of the bankers that was in on the sale um, to buy back his shares. 
immediately after the sale was executed. So the Warner Brothers sell the company and Jack Warner immediately buys his shares back and now owns 90% of the stock of Warner Brothers and appoints himself president of Warner Brothers, effectively uh, cutting out his entire family. Now, can you imagine your family, uh, you know, who just a generation before had all immigrated from Poland, had been in the United States for years. You've got kids, grandkids, I'm assuming at this point. Can't fact check that at the moment, but imagine family gatherings like Thanksgiving or something like that. You know, to actually turn on your brothers like that and to edge them out of the studio. And then he, you know, stayed on for another mm, 11 years or so before he was let go because Warner Brothers kept exchanging hands for years, you know, eventually um, became Time Warner, then AOL Time Warner, then not AOL Time Warner. You know, I mean, it just, it's changed hands a lot over the years. You know, at one point they owned Six Flags Amusement Park. At one point they, they owned Columbia Pictures. At one point, you know, they owned the MGM lot and then they didn't. I mean, it's just, it's crazy what happened, you know, but it, back in the days of Casablanca, it was just owned by a family. It was a family business. And, uh, you know, with family, oftentimes comes drama. And with Jack Warner, there was no shortage of that. Oh, there we have a suspenseful version of the march. Carl, what happened? The police break up our meeting, Eric. We escaped in the last moment. Come up here a minute. Yes, I come. I want you to turn out the light in the rear entrance. It might attract the police. Now, there's a really, really cool shot of Ingrid Bergman, probably one of the coolest shots in the entire movie, uh, where they use a mirror here. Look at the light on her, and look at the mirror, perfectly framed. And the music. Da-da-da-dee-da-dum. Dee-da-da-da-dum. And when the door closes like that. But oftentimes, you know, Haskell Wexler would talk about the lighting that they did in this movie and how they would have actual, um, they'd have specials on her eyes um, just so that they would have an extra spark or twinkle in her eyes. You know, I mean, her eyes were separately lit from the rest of her face. And you can see it in a lot of those shots. I wonder if it's worth all this. I mean, what you're fighting for. The might as well question why we breathe. If we stop breathing, we'll die. We stop fighting our enemies, the world will die. What of it? It'll be out of his misery. Roger Ebert says there's something about uh, Victor Laszlo that he finds unlikable. Um, and I think it's that he's a perfect man. He's a perfect character. Um, he even goes as far as to say, you know, there's that scene where he says to Ilsa, I love you so much. You know, uh, Rick never says that, but it's so obvious. Um, there's just something about Rick that is... You know, first of all, he has uh, tremendous pain, tragic flaws, and you're watching him in a relatable way overcome them. Whereas Victor Laszlo is literally perfect, uh, so honorable, so well-dressed, so poised. Um, he's kind of the, the moral compass. You know, he's, he's kind of what everyone's aspiring to do, which is fight. He's the only person in the movie that has... Um, he's the only person in the movie that has remembered to fight and has been fighting. You know, he's what everyone should aspire to be, yet we somehow, for some reason, want 
Ilsa to end up with Rick. Fascinating. Monsieur Laszlo? Yes? You'll come with nice stinger there by Max Steiner. For your arrest. On what charge? Captain Renault will discuss that with you later. It seems that destiny has taken a hand. Uh-huh. And there's As Time Goes By in a minor setting. Haven't any actual proof, and you know it. This isn't Germany or occupied France. All you can do is find them a few thousand francs. This is another interesting scene where they finally lay their cards out on the table and have a real conversation. Of course, Rick ends up double crossing him in the next scene, but they don't know that yet. Because, one, you bet 10,000 francs he'd escape. Two, you got the letters of transit. Now, don't bother to deny it. And, well, you might do it simply because you don't like Strasser's looks. As a matter of fact, I don't like him either. They're all excellent reasons. Don't count too much on my friendship, Ricky. Two people that dance around the Nazis finally getting real with each other. And, you know, saying what you mean in this environment could be uh, very, very dangerous, if not lethal. You know, saying something against the Nazis. I'm leaving Casablanca on tonight's plane, the last plane. But uh, he divulges that he has the letters. You'll appreciate. What friend? Ilza Lund. That ought to put your mind to rest about my helping Laszlo escape. So we actually do think that he is taking Ilsa because they've decided to run off together. Tell me this. You have the letters of transit. You can fill in your name and hers and leave any time you please. Why are you still interested in what happens to Laszlo? I'm not. But I am interested in what happens to Ilsa and me. We have a legal right to go, that's true. But people have been held in Casablanca in spite of their legal rights. What makes you think we want to hold you? Ilsa's Laszlo's wife. She probably knows things that Strasser would like to know. Louis, I'll make a deal with you. If instead of this petty charge you have against him, you could get something really big, something that would chuck him in a concentration camp for years, it'd be quite a feather in your cap, wouldn't it? It certainly would. Germany, uh, Vichy, would be very grateful. <laughs> That's a great slip of the tongue. Germany, uh, Vichy, would be very grateful. So much commentary here going on. Letters of transit, and that'll give you the criminal grounds on which to make the arrest. You get him, and we get away. The Germans, that last will be just a minor annoyance. There's still something about this business I don't quite understand. Miss Lund, she's very beautiful, yes. But you were never interested in any woman. Oh, she isn't just any woman. I see. How do I know you'll keep your end of the bargain? I'll make the arrangements right now with Laszlo and the visitor's pen. Ricky, I'm going to miss you. Apparently, you're the only one in Casablanca who has even less scruples than I. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Go ahead, Ricky. And by the way, call off your watchdogs when you let them go. I don't want them around this afternoon. I'm taking no chances, Louis, not even with you. Rick could be Louis Renault, but he's not. He is He is becoming more. Should we draw papers, or is a handshake good enough? And here he is selling the bar. You know, this diegetic music keeps reappearing every time he visits Sydney Green Street, and it's kind of one of the ways for us to know as an audience, oh, we're, we're at his establishment. The profits, that still goes. I happen to know he gets 10%, but he's worth 25. Abdul, Carl, and Sasha, they stay with the place where I don't sell. Of course they stay. Ricks wouldn't be Ricks without them. Well, so long. And don't forget you owe Ricks a hundred carton of American cigarettes. I should remember to pay it to myself. Sydney Green Street is so good in the Maltese Falcon. Ah, and there's that, uh, there's that Ilsa court again. We're about to find out what's going to happen. Is she going to go with Rick? Are they really going to do this? Looks that way. He's got the papers. We hear as time goes by, as the scene starts. 
<laughs> as time goes by, played with low winds in a dramatic way. And then it cuts off as soon as they start speaking. As uh, Steven Spielberg calls it, shameless theatricality. It is like seeing a perfect play. Is everything ready? Have the letters right here. Tell me, when we searched the place, where were they? Sam's piano. Serves me right for not being musical. That's right. Oh, here they are. You better wait in my office. Okay, so he goes to hide. And here is a very sort of minor key dramatic version of that resistance march. As Laszlo pays the cab driver. You were able to arrange everything. Everything is quite all right. We'll tell him at the end. More as time goes by. He's like, how come you haven't told him? How come you were going off together, right? You haven't told him. There's a classic shot of her, that hat tilted covering half of her face. Mr. Blaine, I don't know how to thank you. I'll save it. We've still lots of things to do. There's the resistance march again. You'll need it in America. But we made a deal. Never mind that. You won't have any trouble in Lisbon, will you? No, it's all arranged. Good. I've got the letters right here. There it is again. Victor Laszlo? That stops. No music there. Why? Because it's not going to happen. These letters were stolen. Oh, you're surprised about my friend Ricky. The explanation is quite simple. Yeah, there's no power in Claude Marines' words. But in the pistol, there is. So it's a great. That's a great uh, example of where not to put music. I have. Sit down over there. Somehow we know that they're not under arrest because there's no music telling us that there is. Under the circumstances, I will sit down. As time goes by, modified. Keep your hands on the table. I suppose you know what you're doing, but I wonder if you realize what this means. I do. We've got plenty of time to discuss that later. Call up your watchdogs, you said. Just the same. You call the airport and let me hear you tell them. And remember, this gun is pointed right at your heart. That is my least vulnerable spot. <laughs> it's just so good. Hello? Is that the airport? Huh? This is Captain Reynolds speaking. Uh -huh. That shot on Strasse. Transit for the Lisbon plane. There's to be no trouble about them. Good. So that's Deutschlandlied. Modified. Again, Nazi theme. Strasser's like, I'm not the airport. There's something weird going on. And now the strings start to move to give us a tempo. A rhythmic drive there. Timpani rolling. More German uh, Deutschland lead. Now, this is an interesting shot here because this is actually on stage one at Warner Brothers, meant to look like it's outside. That airplane is very small, and they actually hired little people to stand in front of it as extras in order to give the force perspective that it's a full-sized airplane, but it's not. Uh, that's a force perspective shot and one of the more famous uh, practical effect shots in classic Hollywood. Uh, again, the f because it's nighttime and it's foggy, the floor is wet and wet Floors also photograph really well at night because they reflect light. Certainly, Rick. Anything you say. Find Mr. Lazo's luggage and put it on the plane. Yes, sir. This way, please. If you don't mind, you fill in the names. That'll make it even more official. You think of everything, don't you? I mean, these costumes of Ilsa and uh, Bogart here. I mean, this this is as classic Hollywood as it gets. And there's as time goes by, and here's the famous Hill of Beans speech. He's like, no, 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 you're going with Laszlo. What happened to you last night? Last night we said a great many things. 
You said I was to do the thinking for both of us. Well, I've done a lot of it since then. It all adds up to one thing. You're getting on that plane with Victor where you belong. But Richard, no one... Now, you've got to listen to me. You have any idea what you'd have to look forward to if you stayed here? As time goes by... out of ten, we'd both wind up at a concentration camp. Isn't that true, Louis? I'm afraid, Major Strauss, I would insist. You're saying this only to make me go. I'm saying it because it's true. Inside of us, we both know you belong with Victor. You're part of his work, the thing that keeps him going. If that plane leaves the ground... More as time goes by. Him, ...you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. But what about us? We'll always have Paris. We didn't have... We, we lost it until you came to Casablanca. We got it back last night. When I said I would never... Now we get it unmodified. And you never will. I've got a job to oh, do, Oh, except too. for there. Where I'm going, you can't follow. What I've got to do, you can't be any part of. Those I'm no good at being noble. There's another close-up shot of her filtered. little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Someday you'll understand that. No, no. There's the glorious return of As Time Goes By. Totally sincere, earned, at last, unmodified. Except Strasser's on his way. Everything is in order. And there's Victor Laszlo. except one thing. There's something you should know before you leave. Now, notice there's still that low note in the bass, keeping tension. Nothing is resolved. And as long as that low note is going, you know that there's still something unresolved hanging in the air. came there for the letters of transit. Isn't that true, Elsa? Yes. Tried everything to get now, this is kind of an interesting mashup of as time goes by in that victory march. It's really, really beautifully done. He does this a lot where he mashes the themes together. La Marseillaise in as time goes by, the resistance march in as time goes by. I appreciate it. Welcome back to the fight. This time I know our side will win. And Stinger, once the uh, engine starts on the plane. They all look at each other. The three of them look at each other. This is the moment of destiny. She looks away. Yes, I'm ready. Makes her decision. In a lot of ways, tragically, like everything that happens to, to Ilsa, the decisions are made for her. Yes, by these two men, but also just by the war. And now we get as time goes by, but modified again in minor. It's tragic. It's sad. He's letting go. And she's playing it beautifully there, Ingrid Bergman. She smiles, but she's weeping. And also, the smile doesn't last long. I don't know what you're talking about. What you just did for Laszlo. That fairy tale you invented. And then here's that resistance march when he's like, Wow, what you just did for Laszlo. Wow. She knew you were lying. Anyway, thanks for helping me out. I suppose you know this isn't going to be very pleasant for either of us, especially for you. I'll have to arrest you, of course. As soon as the plane goes, Louis. What was the meaning of that phone call? Victor Laszlo is on that plane. More tension here. Why do you stand a lot of this was shot at the studio, but a lot of it was shot at the Van Nuys Airport as well. And then some of the effects were actual airplane models. I was willing to shoot Captain Reno, and I'm willing to shoot you. Hello. Put that phone down. Get me the radio tower. Put it down. 
It's hard for me not to hear Bugs Bunny cartoons with that gunshot, that classic Warner Brothers gunshot. Major Strasser has been shot. There's Deutschland lead, and as time goes by, Round up the usual suspects. as Louis and Rick look at each other, and Rick covers for, or Louis covers for Rick. And a modified version of La Marseillaise as he takes this Vichy bottle here. Well, Rick, you're not only a sentimentalist, but you've become a patriot. I believe it seemed like a good time to start. And symbolically, he takes the bottle, dumps it in the trash. And... Max Steiner hitting it there with a vibraphone. Maybe to represent liquid splashing on screen. They watch the plane fly away. It might be a good idea for you to disappear from Casablanca for a while. There's a free and now we actually get a Marcier's. With uh, hopeful light strings, as written. Make any difference about? I bet you still owe me ten thousand francs, and that ten thousand francs should pay out. This last line was actually added by Hal Wallace and was dubbed. I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Dubbed by Bogart in post-production, and we close with La Marseillaise, just fully given to us in all of its glory. Right here, the end. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. Thanks so much for joining me for this commentary for Casablanca, a film from 1942. You know, I love the idea of us just sitting around and just talking to each other about what we love about film music and great movies like this one. Looking forward to doing more commentaries and producing even more of The Soundtrack Show to celebrate the music that we love. Thank you. The Soundtrack Show is an iHeartRadio podcast. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.